Okay, let's make a start. Um, I'm Robert Wade. I'm a professor in the Department of International Development here at LSE, and I have great pleasure in chairing this event. The event is to launch um, the publication of this 400-plus page book. This event is literally the first public airing of the book, although it is officially published on Thursday. Um, Andrew is a fellow of the New Economics Foundation. Um, he was trained at LSE, in fact, not just trained at LSE, he was trained in the Department of International Development, or the De Development Institute, as it was then called, um, and uh, has since worked a lot for organizations such as Oxfam and Christian Aid. He's described by the new scientist as a, quote, master of joined-up progressive thinking. Now, some people might think that, quote, trained at LSE, unquote, and, quote, a master of joined-up uh, progressive thinking would be an oxymoron, um, but I think that would be unkind. Um, this book, um, uh, Cancel the Apocalypse, follows his earlier book called um, Tescopoli, as in Tesco, which was about the hollowing out of high streets by supermarket chains like Tesco's and the creation of ghost towns, what he called ghost towns on the one hand and on the other hand, clone towns, clone towns, and about what should be done to revive community life in urban, space, uh, um, urban places. This book is much more ambitious. It shows a path and the plausibility of a path between the three main streams of literature which look ahead several decades. One stream is the apocalyptic stream which says um, we are doomed unless dot, dot, dot. Uh, the second stream is the skeptical environmentalist stream which says that climate change is unrelated to human activity and that we have plenty of time left in which to continue to seek high economic growth and then later, when we become much richer, we will have more resources in order to adapt to whatever climate change happens to bring us. That's the skeptical environmentalist stream. And then there's the third and quite interesting stream, which I call the Stern stream of literature after Nicholas Stern. Andrew reports in the book that he attended the launch of the Stern report, the final version, in 2006, and he asked... Nick, who of course is a professor at this university, as Nicholas um, stood flanked by the Prime Minister, by the Chancellor, by the Secretary of State for the Environment, and by the head of the Royal Society, Andrew asked Nick um, whether his team had analysed what level of economic growth was compatible with preventing dangerous climate change. And, Nick, uh, and Andrew reports, quote, they hadn't. The team hadn't analyzed this. They hadn't asked whether in theory or practice the unspoken assumption of endless growth was compatible with preventing runaway global warming. Well, that's the third stream, the Stern stream. And um, Andrew's message is that man-made climate change, yes, is real. It's very dangerous for the biosphere, uh, to say nothing of human civilization. Um, um, but it, prevents, it presents us 
with a wonderful opportunity to change our existing ways of living, especially in the rich world, um, in ways that will actually enhance our capabilities and our flourishing, as well as protect the biosphere. And he gives some reasonably plausible um, ideas on how to do it. Um, just uh, ten days ago, he had an article in the Sunday Observer, Let's Play Fantasy Economics, um, in which he postulates a country called Goodland, Goodland um, and characterizes Goodland as a collection of characteristics that exist everywhere today in various parts of the world. The trouble is that they don't all exist together. Some exist in Iceland, some exist in, well, many other places, uh, including Germany, big countries like Germany, including also the United States. The, the question is how to bring together things that actually do exist into one society. So, with that introduction, Andrew is going to talk for roughly 45 minutes, and we'll have roughly 45 minutes for discussion. I was thinking that was an excellent summary, actually. I think I might leave it at that and go straight to questions. <laughs> so it's better earn my, earn my keep. Um, and uh, although it is true that um, I was... I was trained at the LSE in the sense that um, I came here and I sat in lecture theatres and, and listened to my esteemed professors. Whether I actually took it on board is a matter entirely. Um, but anyway, I, I, I figure that... Um, That's the difference between training and education. <laughs> One thing I didn't learn was um, the location of this building. I managed to walk past it three times this evening without seeing where it was. Um, uh, if I can't find the building... Hopefully we won't even be able to find the apocalypse to stop it happening. Anyway, I figure this evening I'm already up. I've got a very nice LSE events pen. So if everything, everything else goes disastrously wrong, um, I, will, I will go home the richer. Um, now, it's, it's, uh, it is literally the first outing for this. It's not out till, till Thursday. Um, and it, it is, as Robert pointed out, kind of 400 pages. It's never intended to be that long, but heck, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world, and it just sort of grew to that. So exactly how much of that ground I can cover this evening, I don't know. We'll see how far we get. I'm not really a veteran of the book circuit tour anyway, so I, I did wonder at one stage how you're supposed to do these things. Perhaps in my 45 minutes, what do I do? Open up page one, start reading, and then stop after 45 minutes and see how far we get. But maybe that's idea. And of course, then you wouldn't want to buy the book because you'd know what's in it. Um, so when I mentioned the title, uh, Cancel the Apocalypse, the, the initial response I've had from a few of my sort of friends and colleagues has surprised me because they say, what's it called? I say, it's called Cancel the Apocalypse. And, and then people say, well, what's that about? Um, and there was me worrying I was being a bit too obvious and too direct. So the apocalypse can be about many things depending upon where you're standing. Um, if you're a Liberal Democrat, it could be Nick Clegg appearing on Radio Solent, nuancing an already ambiguous denial about um, various misdemeanours. If you're into food issues, it could be something to do with um, extraneous horse meat entering the food chain. Although, from an apocalyptic point of view, that may be no bad thing, because if the, all the horses end up in your burgers, the horsemen are going to have to walk, and that might slow them down a bit. <laughs> So we can kind of take it easy. So, so I thought I'd, I'd sort of start up front and be really explicit about what the book 
is about, and then I'll say a lot of stuff that's not in the book, so you still feel some incentive to go and buy it. Um, so it, it is about, I mean, Robert actually very, very nicely um, summarised it, better than I think um, I have done in the book, that it, it, it poses a question about how globally we can all prosper within the tolerance levels of our biosphere. But it's also about our capacity for change and for innovation and adaptation and transition in the face of some pretty big challenges. But it's also about how we've achieved change in the past and how this isn't new. This may be a different moment, but the question being, what can we learn from what we've done before in order to make the transitions that we need to make now? But it's, 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 a, it's a big book, in a sense, to make a, a simple point. And that's that I think there really are other ways to organise our affairs that come from outside of the plutocrats' playbook and that beyond either despair and doom-mongering on the one hand or denial and the belief in simple techno-fixes or indeed cynical profiteering on the other hand, that there are countless progressive solutions to the systemic, economic and environmental threats that we face. And the big barrier for us is an outdated and narrowly self-serving economic doctrine, something which might be summed up, I suppose, as merely to have a kind of a, a handle on it in Alan Greenspan's famous comment about the flaw that he found in the model, which I'll come to a bit later. Um, and then I thought, uh, maybe the people who kind of ask question about, questions about what's the book about, um, maybe they have a point, because there are big reputational risks in predicting the apocalypse. Because the apocalypse talks a good fight, but as yet, it hasn't delivered. You'll all remember towards the end of last year, there was a sort of um, a social media and general media flurry around a little reading of the Mayan long scan calendar. And if for nothing else, instances, cultural moments like this are quite good for jokes that circulate very quickly on social media. So there were those who commented that people are making apocalypse jokes like there's no tomorrow, who were rapidly followed by people asking, will there be no end to the apocalypse jokes, who were followed by others reassuring them, don't worry about telling them all now, There'll always be a next time. And this is the key point, because pretty much from the earliest attempts to write human affairs down, people have thought that it might all be coming to an end. About 5,000 years ago, you had uh, the Assyrians impressing on clay tablets the idea that human civilization was going to end 
due to degeneracy. The clay tablets they put their fears down onto outlived their own civilization to prove them wrong. And then there was one of my favorites, the, um, what started off as the followers of William Miller, who became the second-day Adventists, and then, due to inflation, became the seventh-day Adventists. They thought that the end of times was going to come in 1843, 1845, 1846, 1849, 1851. Then, obviously, they got a bit bored. wasn't again until 1874. Then they took a rest until 1999. There was our friend, our learned friend, Thomas Malthus, um, founder of the Statistical Society and a professor of history and political economy, published his essay on the principle of population in 1798. Well, he thought we were all going to be collapsed by a demographic time bomb, triggering global starvation. Now, the great thing about Malthus is that he made it possible to be both wrong and respectable. Here we are in the city of London. It's all supposed to have come to an end here on, on several occasions. There was meant to be a great flood on the 1st of February in 1524. There was uh, meant to be um, another flood in 1736, an earthquake in 1761. Um, Londoners don't tolerate people making, um, worrying them unnecessarily. The uh, prophet of the last false apocalypse was um, captured by the mob and thrown into the Bedlam Asylum, never to see the light of day again. Then we have our, our friends, the Mayans. It wasn't just the Mayans last year, by the way, who were saying that it was all going to come to an end. Um, there was another prediction that said uh, somehow the Earth was going to pass through a photon belt, um, and this was going to uh, bring about our demise. Um, it's an interesting proposition, because my, I'm not a physicist, but I, I did check this um, with one of my physicist friends, and they pointed out that if you were going to be in the middle of a photon belt, you'd actually be probably um, at the bottom of a singularity in a black hole and therefore past caring. So that didn't happen either. And then there were kind of various readings of... of oh, yeah, we're meant to have a collision with a trans-dimensional object um, as well. So, lots and lots, and that's just a few. My God, the literature on um, false predictions of the apocalypse is a rich, varied, and highly entertaining one. Um, that's just a handful it keeps being threatened and it keeps not happening. Does this mean we can relax? This was the question that I asked myself because really, personally, I'd love it if we could. I'd love to go and sit on the top of a hill and sketch landscapes and write poetry and generally go for walks in the woods. But the reason that um, I did the opposite, sat in my little disgracefully untidy um, uh, small little room in Balham in South London writing this is because history tells us when you take a different time perspective that if I can put not too fine a word on this that, well, shit happens. Um, there have been at least five major mass extinction events. Now, we may feel reasonably resilient, having survived through these various warnings. Um, Homo sapiens has been around as a sort of mature, thriving species for not much more than about 300,000 years. To point out, the dinosaurs survived for 165 million. We think of them as stupid for becoming extinct. We've got quite a lot to live up to yet. Um, but we've had the mass extinction uh, event at the end of the Ordovician period, in the Devonian, the Permian, 
um, the late Triassic, and uh, my favourite, if one can have a favourite mass extinction event, uh, was in the marvellously titled Paleocene, Eocene, Thermal Maximum otherwise known as the PETM. It oversaw one of Earth's more recent extinction events just 55 million years ago. Um, Now, what's interesting about the PETM? Well, James Hansen, the NASA climate scientist, notes that with global warming today, that climate zones are moving, and this is an indication of, um, of global warming, that climate zones are moving and species attempting to move um, with them in order to stay within their climatic environmental comfort zone, currently about ten times faster than they did during the PETM extinction event. We're now living through another mass extinction event, which is being driven not only by changes to the climate and climate warming, but by the broader pressure that we're putting on the biosphere through human economic activity. Hansen reckons that uh, the language he uses to say that we're on the cusp of losing the climate in which human civilization emerged. Um, A little bit of our own number crunching at NEF based upon the quite conservative risk models that um, the IPCC use and uh, making some very conservative estimates for the domino effect you get happening in the environment as things warm and one thing feeds off another, so forest dieback, glacier loss, etc., 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 that on current trends in terms of accumulation of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, we've now got about 46 months to go before... The concentration of gases makes it no longer likely, that's a risk term with a specific meaning that the IPCC use, that we will stay below a two-degree warming above pre-industrial levels. Now, why does that matter? Well, that's one of the thresholds after which these environmental domino effects start feeding off each other. Hansen, I should point out, says that two degrees itself is too much and we've already gone too far and we need to get back down to about 350 parts per million. We're um, knocking on the door of 400 at the moment. So this is an issue which is critical. We're living through a time in which it may move beyond our ability to control outcomes. And yet we have this model, which I will crudely summarise an economic model of a sort of debt-fueled overconsumption, which is built on rapidly rising global inequality and, I believe, a misunderstanding about the conditions of what lends to higher levels of human well-being. We're seeing increasingly vulnerable systems. Um, instead of resilient, they're becoming shock propagators, whether this is uh, our financial system or whether it's our food system or our energy system. And the direction of travel that we have at the moment in the face of what the science is telling us seems to be headlong in the wrong direction. Just speaking from a UK perspective, um, last year we saw a record-breaking round of um, new licenses for the exploitation of North Sea oil and gas. We've seen tax breaks from our Chancellor um, into the North, uh, North Sea oil and gas sector, leading to um, investment to further exploitation at a 30-year high. At the same time, 
The best number crunching we have available in one paper in particular that this is extrapolated from by a guy called Meinshausen estimates that we can afford to burn no more than around a quarter to a fifth of the fossil fuel reserves which are already proven. And yet all this money is going into further exploitation and production. We've got assumptions in uh, the World Energy Outlook, most recent version from the International Energy Agency, that the number of cars globally is set to double. Um, And the IEA, again, predicting that energy use up to 2035 will commit the world to a 3.6 degree warming. Now, when you hear figures like that, you need to remember that, of course, once you go beyond the point that things start feeding off each other, it becomes pretty meaningless to say that it's going to go to a certain higher temperature because we move beyond the point of being able to control those feedback mechanisms. So 3.6 could be 3.7, could be 4.2, could be putting you on track for uncontrollable warming. That means catastrophic and irreversible effects. And the most disturbing thing is that, given the kind of assumptions that they make, that even under what they call their efficient world scenario, which imagines the best uptake and substitution of clean fuels for dirty fuels, they still foresee a three-degree rise, which takes us way the wrong side of the line. And all the subsidies, all the economic signals we're seeing at the moment are massively skewing investment into fossil fuels rather than renewables. So consumption subsidies to fossil fuels in 2011 were $523 billion. Support to renewables a humble 88 billion. The global energy system is failing to turn the corner and point us in the right direction. There's that. Um, You might remember, if you think back to the last uh, American elections, there's the the stats guru who was being quoted everywhere at the time, this guy called Nate Silver. Um, He gave a lovely um, comment about um, comparing comparing the Republicans and their denial of what the data was saying would be the likely outcome of elections. He compared them to, um, to Caesar, saying that they were willfully ignoring signs that point to their own demise. These are words that I believe apply equally to our attitude to our current economic model and the changes that are happening to our climate. Equally, there's a nice columnist on the FT called Andrew Hill, who admittedly he was talking about the banking system, but I thought it applied um, quite equally to our conception of uh, the larger economic model, when he talked about grandiose consensus errors and functional stupidity. And he spoke of the perilously bovine state that organizations can sink into. Now, whether that's our coalition government or um, any other pretty much at the moment, I wonder... And at the same time, when you come across people who do try to do things, you come across the climate campaigners who find themselves being sued for £5 million by the state-backed French um, energy company, um, EDF. Um, You wonder, you wonder, you wonder. And even when you get unintentional hints creeping through from weather reports, um, uh, you wonder again. Um, This is my particular favourite. I was listening to Radio 4 on the 17th of January this year when, without a hint of um, irony or even awareness of what they were saying Um, Rebecca Drought reported unusually high rainfall that is her name it's like the middle ages when name is destiny Um, 
And if we look across to the way that incentives are working in the rest of the economy, we still see evidence of the, of the 1% model. We see in the FTSE 100 companies the pay and benefits of top executives up 27%, while everybody else is being told to tighten their belts. We see RBS, the publicly owned um, British megabank, uh, which um, is also, also uh, used to proudly call itself the oil and gas bank until people pointed it out and it got a bit embarrassed and it, it closed that particular um, website. It's still one of the most significant funders of fossil fuels. Um, and not only is it pouring money into fossil fuels or helping money to be poured into fossil fuels, it's also pouring money into its senior executive. Bonuses, in spite of everything, in spite of everything and the fact that it's now publicly owned, 300 million likely bonuses going to top executives in the next, in the next bonus round. And we have David Cameron telling us that if you criticise the banks... You will end up, and I quote, trashing Britain, which is odd because I thought that's what the banks did to us. John Harris in The Guardian, when he talked about the kind of the level of, 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 of economic and political debate, um, far from it in terms of having broad horizons, in terms of the grasp of the grand challenges facing us, he talked about how we're trapped in what he called small gazebo politics as opposed to big tent politics. I thought that was rather nicely put. So we have flaws in the model, but it's very hard to get purchase on this. And how I wonder sort of how best to sum it up. Um, sometimes when I talk about the way that we get thrown into a certain direction, uh, it being partly the re result of how we measure the economy. If, for example, I know it's more nuanced than this, but at the level of political rhetoric and the populist level of actual um, economic policy making, uh, growth is still the be-all and end-all. There's not, uh, maybe with one exception that I'll come to later, maybe two exceptions I'll come to later, both very small in economic terms, um, not a head of state alive who would turn around and argue against the notion that their economy should grow and grow effectively, indefinitely. Um, and the way, the kind of the, the absurdity of the model this locks us into because of the way those indicators work. One example I give is if I woke up on a Sunday morning um, and I had two choices about what I wanted to do. One of them was to go and get in a car, drive through gridlock traffic to an industrial estate to visit B&Q, um, to buy some stuff to unblock my drains with or a patio heater, get stuck at the checkout and drive home. The economy would think that I'm supremely happy because I'd be spending money, expressing preferences, adding to GDP. If, on the other hand, the sun was shining, I got up, I went to my local park, I went for a walk in the woods, I listened to birdsong. That would not register. And as far as the economy was concerned, I'd be pretty bloody miserable. Um, so I just think about examples like that when I try to get purchased. And then the other example I stumbled across um, was this. Let me quote to you. A pandemic spreads. A terrorist detonates a nuclear bomb in a major city and claims to have more ready to explode. Ice caps melt, coastlines are submerged, and crops wither from drought. 
Clean, fresh water becomes increasingly difficult to obtain. Or maybe it is oil that becomes scarce. Or a global financial panic erupts that regulators cannot contain. Any one of those scenarios could occur in our lifetimes. Indeed, some of them already have. Um, The one thing they all have in common is that their occurrence will touch off panic and, in some cases, hysteria. As a result, these events will also contain the seeds of profit for investors who stay calm and think rather than panic and run. Now, where do you think that came from? Anybody know? Ladies and gentlemen, I was reading to you from the Wall Street Journal Guide to Investing in the Apocalypse. (laughs) Published in 2011, a quite serious and thoroughly unironic publication. Um, And that was published three years after Alan Greenspan's famous comment about the flaw in his model, which even though the years have passed, it's still worth revisiting. Because if you can throw your mind back to that time when uh, Greenspan was being was up against one of the congressional committees and he had um, the uh, Californian rep, Henry Waxman, asked him quite simply, and of course, remember, I mean, things move on very quickly, that Greenspan was basically... He was the lord of the lords of finance. He was the architect of finance-driven globalization. He was the man who ran, as much as anybody did, the global economy for a couple of decades or more, disciple of Ayn Rand and all that jazz. And Waxman asked Greenspan very simply, were you wrong? Um, And initially, Greenspan was slightly perplexed. And so Waxman quoted Greenspan's own words back at him. He he, he said uh, that Greenspan said... Uh, I do have an ideology. My judgment is that free competitive markets are by far far the unrivaled way to organize economies. We've tried regulation. None meaningfully worked. Those were Greenspan's words. And Greenspan replied, well, remember that what an ideology is is a conceptual framework with the way people deal with reality. Everyone has one. You have to to exist. You need an ideology. The question is whether it is accurate or not. Um, And what I'm saying to you is, yes, I found a flaw in the model that I perceived is the critical functioning structure that defines how the world works, so to speak. I love the way he threw in, so to speak, at the end. It's a bit like going to your doctor and being given a a prognosis that you've got three months to live and your doctor says, yes, you're going to die so to speak. It sort of tries to sort of soften it a bit in some strange way. Um, but it, it's, you know, uh, for me, uh, Greenspan having said that was a bit like, you know, the Pope resigning and then saying there's no God. We got halfway there recently. Um, and, and, and then, given all the accusations that get thrown at people who are identified as being, I don't know, however you want to call it, sort of progressive on the left or whatever, I love the childish naivety of Greenspan when he said, I made a mistake in presuming that the self-interest of organisations, specifically banks, is such that they were best capable of protecting shareholders and equity in firms. I mean, I just love that. This man ran the global economy for 20 years and he has this beautifully cuddly vision of how banks operate. How did that happen? How did that happen? Especially when you take into account the fact that the CFO of Goldman Sachs, when looking back at 2008, 
and describing the risk models that they were using at the time, said that what actually happened, according to their risk model, was what he called a 25-sigma event. This is pointed out in John Lanchester's book, Whoops, which is absolutely brilliant. Um, now, for those of you who are not into sort of um, abstract math, and, and I'm not either, I, I had to check this, um, a 25-sigma event, if it were expressed as a ratio to 1, it would be a number equal to 10 times all the particles in the known universe, um, and then you move the decimal point 52 places to the right. You know, that's how likely, according to their risk model, what happened was, in terms of it possibly happening. But it happened. So the risk models were fundamentally flawed. And that's partly because I think behind all of this is that that whole project, that whole economic project, was never evidence-based. It was ideological. It was doctrinal. Um, to the point that right up to 2006, just before the crash, you had Gordon Brown in this fair city of ours um, rather boasting, actually, um, saying that, I will be, he said, I will be honest with you. Many who advised me, including not a few newspapers, favoured a regulatory crackdown. I believe we were right not to go down that road. And we were right to build upon our light-touch system. Um, obviously tempted to go into um, what Osborne's been saying about the credit ratings agency, but that would just be kind of a bit of a cheap shot. But I will mention that here we are still four or five years on from the crash, and I do believe that very, very little has been learned in the city of London. So much so that if you listen to those early economics reports on Radio 4 in the morning, you may have heard a couple of months ago um, a guy from uh, one, of, one of the city analysts um, popping up and being asked whether we needed to look a little bit more into what went wrong and how we need to do things differently. And, and he actually said, and I'm not exaggerating at all, that um, he basically said bankers need to stop beating themselves up. They need to just take a happy pill and get on with it. That is what he said. That's the level that our debate has got to. And it's still a mantra, an incantation. You heard it on the news last night when people were talking about Italy and its prospects and what was happening politically, that it's all about what will be the judgment of the markets. What will the credit ratings agencies said, say? Have we learnt nothing? Now, um, Robert mentioned that I'd sort of referred to Iceland. I think Iceland is a very interesting place for, for many, many reasons at the moment. Um, I rather like what, um, what uh, our, our friend Paul Krugman said about Iceland um, in regard to our fear of the markets. And he said that uh, a funny thing happened on the way to economic Armageddon. Iceland's very desperation made conventional behaviour impossible, freeing the nation to break the rules, where everyone else bailed out the bankers and made the public pay the price. Iceland let the banks go bust and actually expanded its social safety net, where everyone else was fixated on trying to placate international investors. Iceland imposed temporary controls on the movement of capital to give itself room for manoeuvre. Um, and, of course that lesson about how people survived and, in fact, recovered more effectively by turning their backs on accepted ways of doing things is echoed in Argentina and various other places. So, sort of, the territory that I'm trying to deal with here is that, uh, much in the same way that, for good reason, on the side of ships, you have painted the symbol of the London Underground, otherwise known as the Plimsoll Line. Because if you overload a ship, it becomes unstable and prone to sink. For the same reason, I think we need measures like that for our economy, where if we overburden it with consumption and exploitation of our biosphere, 
if we go too far, we're liable to tip the balance. I think we need to question the purpose and the objective of the economic model that we've been working to because I believe that the underlying assumptions are wrong to the point of being bizarre and that we need to ask questions about how we actually, in practice, maximise our well-being whilst working within the tolerance levels of the biosphere. And it's the case repeated in study after study that in those societies where you've moved beyond having your basic material needs met, higher levels of consumption does not commensurately translate through into higher levels of well-being. I think we need to correct some of the grotesque reductions about human nature that we see in economic theory and um, perhaps take a note out of some rather interesting research reported in New Scientist from a woman called Deborah Rogers who made the point that in our approaches to um, that, that old horribly sort of social Darwinist misrepresentation of evolutionary theory when, um, you know, the strongest survive and all that jazz, that um, she rather interestingly made the point that many theories begin with the idea that inequality is somehow a beneficial cultural trait that imparts efficiencies, motivates innovation, and increases the likelihood of survival. But the research shows that rather than imparting advantages to the group, unequal access to resources is inherently destabilizing and in fact greatly raises the chance of group extinction. So what to do? Well, I think if you're hurtling towards a cliff, you want to stop before you go over the edge or change course. And, and history, which I go into a bit in the book, has got plenty of examples of both warnings and hope. But I do think we need to drop the dogma. I think we need to learn a little bit, actually, from some of the other sciences, not least ecology. In ecology, there's an idea of a climax ecosystem, which is defined as the last stage in ecological succession, an ecosystem in which all populations are in balance with each other and the factors of their non-living environment. I wonder if we might be able to begin to imagine a concept of climax economics, an economy in which we optimise how we live rather than maximise what we consume that would allow us to find an enduring balance with the biosphere that we depend on. I had a bit of an attack when I was structuring the book. I had a bit of an attack of um, alliteration in going through the sections. So you'll find them roughly broken down into our motives. I believe we have very strong motives to survive and um, whether it be future generations, family, um, our kin, etc., that we need to pick apart the model built upon and um, enshrined in the neoliberal project, that we need to find new measures that can give us more intelligent directions, that there are many cultural myths that we can, um, we can play with. I, I, I toy with the, the Icarus myth in the book a bit, and that was triggered slightly by um, an incident. When you feel that it's almost impossible to imagine doing things differently. I was really struck by that brief period after the unpronounceable Icelandic volcano erupted a couple of years ago. And overnight, the plains of Europe were grounded. Um, and guess what? The world didn't end. People found other ways of doing stuff. They even started talking to each other. It was extraordinary. There was peace in the skies. Um, and that just made me think that it's not until something interrupts the sort of hypnotic momentum that the system has gathered that you become aware that there may be viable alternatives, different ways of doing things. And 
I mean, where consumerism is concerned, and I do talk about that quite a bit, uh, I believe very deeply, to use a, a, a particularly a British expression, that we've been sold a pup. Um, I, I think it, it has been one very cleverly and very relentlessly reinforced trick in order to kind of hook us into a particular way of being, in, 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 where in spite, and we kind of know this intuitively at so many levels, in spite of all the promises that getting more stuff and buying more stuff is going to make you feel better, you know, look better to your mates and all the rest of it. We know that's nonsense, and yet we do it anyway because we're in this kind of cultural paint pot of relentless um, reconditioning and reconditioning. I did a little exercise, which I I talk about in the book, actually, but I just took a day, it took 24 hours, and um, counted all the adverts that I came across, whose basic message was to define me, first and foremost, as a consumer who will only be happy if I buy more stuff. Uh, And I also counted all the messages which imparted some sort of public citizen message. Um, Of the latter, there were so few that I could remember all of them. There were three. Um, One was a message in my local railway station asking me to not beat up their staff. Um, Another addressed me as a a driver, uh, which I'm not, asking me to please not run over cyclists. And the third was um, about a mugging um, that had had occurred. Now, compared to that, I came across uh, about 450-plus other adverts. So you've got this kind of constant conditioning. People talk about you know, the old propaganda of the old Soviet bloc countries. I think that's got got nothing on what capitalism does for you on a daily basis. Um, uh, I talk a lot about money, actually, and the way in which we can turn the financial system to our advantage, how, in fact, whether it's through reimagining and redirecting the money created through quantitative easing to invest in a green investment bank that can invest in laying the foundations for uh, a greener, low-carbon infrastructure for our economy um, on on the one hand, or the the incredible innovation that occurs at local levels. And interestingly, when economies fall apart, one of the first things that happens is that communities start making their own currencies. You saw it in Argentina, you saw it in Greece, you've seen it in countless other circumstances. That, That money is one of the most mythologized areas of economics and least well understood. Um, at NEF, we ran a campaign on the banking system over the last couple of years. And um, we, uh, and there was a, you'll remember that there was a report into the banking system called the Vickers Commission. And the difficulty we had getting the people staffing the Vickers Commission to grasp and even agree that the vast majority of credit creation happens at the point that the commercial banks magic it into existence was extraordinary. I think there's this such a powerful folk notion that there's a big pile of gold at the Bank of England, and that's where all the money comes from. This idea that actually under certain circumstances, you know, Ben Bernanke made the point very, very clearly, money can be found from the public purse in order to invest in things that you need. And if it's for productive investment, there's no reason why it should be inflationary. Um, I talk about the history, I mentioned that. I talk about mechanisms in the food and energy sectors, which are ways in which we can meet our needs and meet them explicitly in a way which meets the needs of the poorest first. And also something about how, if we are going to start to live within our means, in a world in which, because of the incredibly skewed income distribution that we have, We live through this paradox where to get ever smaller amounts of poverty alleviation at the bottom of the global income pile, it paradoxically requires ever more overconsumption by the already rich. 
leading to the bizarre situation where if you just wanted to get everyone in the world onto, say, $3 a day, why $3 a day? It's a bit above those kind of classic levels that the World Bank give you. Well, between $3 and $4 is the level at which the hardwired link between life expectancy and income begins to break down. But given the income stretch we have, if you wanted to get everybody in the world just onto a humble $3 a day, which isn't much, you'd need the resource equivalent of something like 15 planets like Earth to do that. So we cannot do it within the logic and the distribution of the current system. We need to rethink it. Um, um, Robert very kindly mentioned a little piece I wrote for The Observer about Goodland. And I think I did that because I was getting a bit annoyed. Um, I can't believe in 2013 that I'm still hearing from my government, as I did as a child growing up under Margaret Thatcher, that there is no alternative. So I just thought to myself, is that really? Is that the case? Let's think about that. And then I thought about, well, what about if we had a country, for example, in which you had a president who refused the state mansion to live in a humble homestead, gave away 90% of his pay, that we had a constitution written by citizens, that a financial sector that if it did wrong, it was allowed to go bust, and the people who made it go bust would end up in court, that we had a, a banking system that actually did something useful, like lending to small and medium-sized businesses, and that could be mutually owned, and where well-being was a more important statistic than economic growth, that were a place where there were free health and education services, a national plan for good living, subsidised childcare, care for the elderly, a place where there was a law enshrining the superiority of our life-supporting ecosystems above all else, based on the old familiar notion that the economy is a wholly-owned subsidiary of the biosphere, um, where cities were green and grew organic food for their inhabitants, where we were phasing out fossil fuels in just a few years. We had a business sector with large, intelligently connected and productive cooperatives, and the option, should you want it, of working a four-day week. I thought, wouldn't that be a nice place? What a shame it doesn't exist. And then I thought, but wait, ladies and gentlemen, wait. Scour the world. Maybe, just maybe, it does. And lo and behold, in Uruguay, we have a president called Jose Mujica, who lives on about £450 a month. His presidential guard is two policemen and a three-legged dog. He drives a 1987 Volkswagen Beetle. And he criticises rich countries and their development model, berating world leaders and their blind obsession to achieve growth with consumption. We heard about Iceland and its pots and pans revolution. Um, in Porto Alegre, in Brazil. Since 1990 there, citizens have exerted influence over how public money gets spent. And that's become a regular thing. Neighbourhoods meet every week to decide how a big portion of the city's budget gets spent. Um, over the course of seven years, it led to the doubling of access to decent sanitation in poor neighbourhoods. And one reason why Germany was less hit by the banking crisis is because 70% of the sector is in small and community-based banks compared to the UK, where five banks hold about 80% of mortgages and 90% of SME accounts. And those German banks do have a dual mandate. They have to be useful as well as profitable, and they're mostly mutually owned. 
In Spain, you have the Mondragon um, Cooperative, worth 14 billion, employs over 80,000 people. Um, you've probably heard of Bhutan and their famous alternative to GDP. There they have gross national happiness, a composite indicator using 151 variables which assesses good governance, education, health, ecological resilience, community vitality, well-being, time use, living standards, and cultural diversity. Bolivia introduced its Mother Earth law. It persuaded the General Assembly to make April the 22nd Mother Earth Day. Nicaragua is committed to phasing out fossil fuels by 2017. Cuba, um, when it had the shock of loss of access to cheap Soviet oil at the end of the Cold War, um, things could have gone really horribly wrong there. And yet a revolution that started in the cities, not state-led, led by communities, to develop organic urban farming, A, prevented starvation, and B, led to a leap forward in the health um, of the population. In Ecuador, they have an overarching national plan for good living. And good old Denmark, its tax system still pays for free health and education and uh, help with chores for the elderly and the home for people who find it difficult. And, and they find, of course, that this isn't, doesn't undermine the economy. On the contrary, by stimulating investment in infrastructure, education, and R&D, it does the opposite. So every time... And if I ever bump into um, George Osborne, I once did bump into his wife, actually, without realising it was her. Otherwise, if I had it done, our conversation might have been slightly different. Um, I think I might just make the point about alternatives. Uh, and yet, here we are. The only plan we have is this sort of no plan, this sort of bizarre, I mean, taken from some of the more esoteric parts of the more esoteric economic journals, this, this notion um, he has of I've uh, forgotten the phrase now. Do anybody remember what the phrase is? Fiscal consolidation. Fiscal consolidation is one of them. There's the other one in, in which um, uh, he talks about well, the idea that if you bleed the public sector dry that the private sector will come riding to your, riding to your rescue. And there is a particular phrase to it which will obviously occur to me during questions. Um, the idea that that is the only thing that we can do. What plan? What plan? What plan? In the Second World War, Keynes wrote a pamphlet called How to Pay for the War. Uh, and the reason I find this an interesting moment is that even though the circumstances were very different and the threat was very different, um, even with the spectre of Nazi Germany looming, the ideas that Keynes had about how to find the resources to pay for the war effort were thought too strong. Keynes lamented at the time... My discomfort comes from the fact, now made obvious, that the general public are not in favour of any plan. But he agitated, and even the economists conceded that his great service was been to, had been to impel the so-called leaders of opinion to reveal the state of their ignorance on the central economic problem of the war. So now I look around and I say, where are those bold and visionary plans? And I lay that kind of as an allegation at the opposition as much as anyone else. Um, I mean, the mansion tax is interesting, but I don't think it's going to keep the horsemen away. Um, and I think to myself that our task is to uh, help people to imagine how things might be different. It's one of the reasons for trying to imagine good land, but in a very, very practical way, even within 
the UK. We argued in 2008 for a Green New Deal, a kind of a triple win, counter-cyclical investment, which would both immune us from energy shocks, help reboot the economy, lay the infrastructure for low-carbon transition, create loads of jobs. And Deutsche Bank long ago pointed out how investing in um, green energy, multi-scale, decentralized green energy, is much better at creating jobs than just rebooting the highly centralized systems like, like coal and nuclear and all the rest of it. Um, so I thought, Green New Deal, UK, maybe internationally too. Think of the two billion people who don't get access to um, grid quality electricity globally. A Green New Deal in which you use micro and small scale renewables um, at the village level to provide the energy, to boost the economy, to have a virtuous cycle of expanding production, consumption and demand at the local level. So a Green New Deal not just for the UK but maybe internationally. I did a little piece in the Guardian magazine at the weekend looking at the length of the working week. This is the point there's not time to go into a detail here, but in some of the macroeconomic models that ask what variables we have to play with if we want to squeeze our advanced industrialised economies into the available shoe size of the biosphere, that rethinking productivity such that it becomes, we sort of turn on the head traditional notions and do less with more people um, rather than using fewer people to do more. And we look at the length of the working week, that these are two of the variables that we can play with. And there's a, an interesting example in Utah in which, um, quite unexpectedly, because this wasn't the reason that they did it, when they put their public sector onto a four-day week back in 2008, um, they found that when they had the presence of mind to monitor the consequence of doing so, they saved money, they saved energy, they ended up with a happier workforce, absentee rate, rates went down, and a, a significant proportion of the population thought that access to public services actually improved. Um, and uh, in the Netherlands, a four-day week is a standard contractual um, obligation um, uh, option. Uh, so we need to do things which are going to make our systems resilient in the face of these sort of shock-propagating um, circumstances that we have helped to create. We need to look at vulnerability and ways to build resilience rather than building in more vulnerability. I think we need to experiment um, a lot more and accept that things are going to be different. Uh, one of the great problems I've found in the UK, maybe the case internationally as well, in both academia and in the third sector, is that there's a, a tendency to caution on the basis that there's always more evidence needed. But our information is always imperfect. And yet we find ourselves in the moment committed to act in circumstances of risk, complexity, uncertainty, and imperfect information. And unless we intervene with better ideas, you can guarantee the other guys are going to keep pushing to send us over the cliff. So you need to find a way to take a stand with confidence, using your best judgment and information available. So just as a really simple sort of round-off, um, one of the greatest challenges I think people trying to imagine different economic systems have had is coming up with something that can stand up to or be as sticky as the mantra of the old neoliberal project, privatise, liberalise, deregulate. It's so easy to say. 
It's so easy to remember. So I wonder whether we might ask three simple questions of all policies and proposals built upon the analysis which I've tried to elaborate in the book. And that would be these three things. First of all, when you propose anything, is it going to increase or decrease pressure on the biosphere? Secondly, will it lead to a more or less equal distribution of benefits from economic activity or wealth and income? And thirdly, based upon everything that we now know about what does underpin real human well-being, will it enhance or undermine human well-being? And this book is kind of it's my, my take on where and how I think we can begin. It's the start of a plan. I'm not suggesting by any means it's the only one. And in fact, I'd love to see others honestly and explicitly addressing how we make a global economic transition at scale and in the time that we have to see the kind of changes that are needed. Plans calibrated to keep us on the right side of losing the climate that civilization evolved in and where we can all live well within the tolerance levels of the biosphere and tackle the systemic risks that we face. And if by having this conversation it only reveals the state of ignorance amongst our leaders, that will certainly be a start. One of my favourite cultural critics, Raymond Williams, once said that to be truly radical is to make hope possible rather than despair convincing. And that doesn't necessarily mean having to be sort of Pollyannaish about this, because one of my other great um, inspirations, John Ruskin, commented that all great and beautiful work has come of first gazing without shrinking into the darkness. Um, and very often I think it's the poets that have better insights to the way that things run than the economists. And I'll give my last couple of thoughts to two of those. Uh, one being Seamus Heaney from his poem Fieldwork, where he says, The way we are living, timorous or bold, will have been our life. I believe the times call for bold reimaginings, bold reinventions, too easily we can just sort of stumble forward in this mess. And before we know it, the time in which we can make a meaningful difference will have elapsed. Um, but I do think times are changing. I think several things reveal this. And in a funny way, and in an ironic way, um, I was very cynical about the Olympics in London when it was awarded. I thought it was an example of big infrastructure spending in place in the country that needed it last. And then, of course, there were some good things that came out of it, the sense of togetherness. Also, the hilariously ironic comments from Sebastian Coe, who, in an interview, a rather brilliant interview in the Guardian newspaper, actually, um, commented that he didn't really believe in government um, and what they could do. And the interviewer then said, but um, wasn't it the government that allowed the Olympics to happen and pay for it? And he said, oh, yeah, you're right. Um, LAUGHTER and Caroline Duffy wrote this beautiful poem, a sort of hymn of praise to the public purpose and togetherness that came about during that period. And she finished it off with a couplet which rings in my mind on an almost daily basis when she said, we sense new weather. We're all in this together. And ladies and gentlemen, this is just to talk about a book. But really, that aside, we really are all in this together. And it's the likes of you and I who have access 
to institutions, to opinion makers that many people in the world would cry for. It's our job and our duty to try and hold this thing together and turn it round. And I thank you very much for coming out on a freezing cold February evening, even if it was only just to enjoy the um, delightful central heating of the, of the East Building. And make this conversation happen. Think about what your good land would be. Design it. Talk about it with your friends. And then throw your life's energies at making it happen, because we only get one chance. Thank you very much for listening. Good. Well, uh, we have a bit of time for um, discussion, and I'm actually going to use my chairman's privilege to um, ask the first um, question. You have uh, finished on a very high note, urging us all to imagine our good lands. Um, but I want to press you a bit on the question of how we avoid simply, if you excuse the uh, metaphor, how we avoid simply pissing into the wind. Uh, in other words, how we deal with the agency question, to put it in social science terms. Um, and, for example, there's a question of how the political parties are financed. Um, it seems to me that as long as they are financed in something like the way they're financed today, it will be extremely difficult to get um, any political party which has uh, weight in public policy to do anything much different from what uh, the major parties uh, have been doing and saying. Um, there's a question if they were financed, if they had to be financed much more by membership contributions, uh, would that make um, a difference? Uh, there's a question about... Um, the way that the civil, civil society organizations um, operate in the political domain, are there changes that might be made to, to, to get more of a voice? But then, of course, there's a question of which NGOs, which civil society organizations, given that many of them are financed by the fossil fuel industry. Um, so there are these questions about agency. It's all very well to have bold imaginings but um, how to press forward in this current political situation? Mm. Um, I'd say, I don't know if I've got anything kind of blindingly new to bring to this other than uh, repeat the words of, of Gil Scott Heron who once said, if you want peace, you've got to go to work. I think, you know, there's tried and tested ways in which you build that agency. Agency just doesn't come. It has to be struggled for. Um, I absolutely agree about the point about party funding, and there is actually um, there's a little bit on that in, in the book about the kind of reforms that, that are needed in order to kind of break that, um, that lock-in that you get. I mean, I, I, I think you have to throw your life's energies at it in the same way that you would everything else. I think the last couple of years has shown us that sometimes relatively small groups of people who, with an incredible amount of energy and courage, are able to make a difference. I think, ironically, about the way in which on the debate on um, taxation and the whole idea about the 1% economy, about how that was turned around by something that started in this country 
in one student house in the East End of London, and I know because I was there and I saw them do it, about how they took a debate about the thinking and the political atmosphere around what should and shouldn't happen, around tax avoidance, about big corporate tax, tax avoidance, and turned it on its head to the point where, by when the Occupy protest first made camp on the steps of St Paul's, you had David Cameron sneering down his nose at them and being extremely dis- dismissive. And now he's talking about smelling the coffee. Well, they put the kettle on outside St Paul's a long time before David Cameron started smelling the coffee. So I think change does happen, and I think it's only ever come about through history, through mobilisation and relentless optimism and relentless activism. And what I find interesting is that all the arguments that are used against doing something differently, whether we deep, dig deep into history and look at the economic arguments that were used against the abolition of slavery, against the introduction of the Plimsoll line, X, Y, Z, the same economic arguments are brought up again and again and again. And change happens every time as a result of the accumulation of agitation and organisation until the point comes that the mood and the time changes and you've aligned the countervailing forces such that the political status quo is no longer tenable. And I don't think I've got necessarily anything brilliantly new to say about that other than the fact that you've got to get out and do it. It doesn't just happen. I'm not one of those who believes in the inevitable decline and reformation of the system. I think you've got to get out and make it happen. The current state of the financial transaction tax, at least in Europe, where, which, where it seems to have some legs, it seems to be actually moving, um, is an example of um, that things can actually happen which are against the interests of the uh, financial And that's sector. a nice example, actually. Because ten years ago, we wrote, I wrote a report when I was at ChristianAid. We did something jointly with War and Want called the Robin Hood Tax, and we made all the arguments, and there's been a lot of people working diligently in the background for the last ten years to bring that about. Okay, let's um, open it up. Uh, yes, yes. Um, to what extent do you think the education system uh, in, in this country in particular is to blame for the, sort of, the lack of creativity, the lack of intellectual creativity that you've talked about? As sort of oh, a great question. Back? A rather broad question. To what extent is the education system to blame for the lack of creativity in thinking about <coughs> these kind of problems that <coughs> Andrew has described? Uh, I would have to say it will depend upon your department. Um, I have a friend, for example, who is involved in the um, geography department at the Open University, who are brilliantly interdisciplinary, imaginative, forward-looking, visionary almost. (laughs) I could name one or two economics departments where perhaps that wasn't the case. I find it interesting that some of the most exciting thinking uh, and some of the best critiques of the conventional model come from outside, almost all come from outside, of economics departments. I'd say that if anyone's going to drag us over the cliff, it's probably the economics departments that are going to do that. And ironically, you might find that it's the geography departments and also the engineering departments who will be trying to haul you back. Because the thing about engineering, I love engineers. Engineers are great. There's a guy at Imperial College who gave one of the best lectures about the logical impossibility of infinite economic growth that I've ever heard. And the thing about engineers is that they understand that you have to work with intolerances. They understand that if you, you know, you, they also know that if you if you build a bridge and it falls down, uh, you know, 
your ass is going to be hanging out of the window. Uh, ironically, when, when economists build a system that falls apart, um, you know, they get bonuses and all the rest of it. So, um, uh, yeah, I, 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 if you were going to target your ire anywhere, um, I'd have a long, good, hard look at the economics department and build alliances with the other departments against them. Um, engineers and doctors have codes of professional conduct. Economists have none. Um, Yes. It's very refreshing, some of your ideas, and it's long overdue. And I think at the grassroots micro level, a lot of things are actually happening, um, and particularly in this area of um, kind of alternative currencies. I mean, that the cash circulating around local economies is actually dead zero, and that's one of the big issues facing most of the communities and trying to really do things, because there's no cash. Absolutely. There's a, there's a whole chapter all about the whole money question. In, in London, there's several alternative currencies. In London, in Brixton, they've got an alternative currency circulating. Bristol has just launched a very sophisticated citywide alternative currency as well. Um, and these are problems. These are problems which are not new. In, in the Great Depression, there was currency innovation where, for no good reason other than the fact that there were just, the money wasn't circulating, scripts, etc., were brought into existence. And there are... Models that work at scale um, in, um, in mainland Europe, which just don't get enough attention. So yeah, I completely agree. Yes. Hello. Um, what is your opinion on the conspiracy theories? Uh, is there um, a which, which ones? You may need to be specific. Okay. Well, I may have different opinions on different ones. Is there a secret, secret um, um, world order... And, uh, um, I don't know. Let's find out. Is there anybody here from the secret world order? <laughs> Put your hand up now. Like Apparently the, not. For example, the uh, Bilderberg group. And uh, uh, basically, do you think that the policies that are influenced by them and how you would... Um, well, look, I, I mean, which group? Uh, the, the Bilderberg group, she mentioned. Bilderberg. Like, like, I, I, mean, I think it's a very interesting... I mean, that, Obviously, throughout history, there have been some conspiracies. I remember Guy Fawkes was a particularly famous one. Um, but but in, in, in fact, the, the dirty little secret of this game is that you don't need detailed, smoky, backroom conspiracies if there's just a general agreement amongst the plutocracy <laughs> to do things which reinforce each other's interests. That's all that's kind of required. There is a class, there is an economic class that stay in the same hotels, watch the same TV channel, read the same um, newspapers, go to the same meetings, sit on each other's remuneration committees. You don't need a kind of smoky conspiracy when you've got a bunch of people making decisions, reinforcing each other's self-interest. I think that's part of the problem. And that's why you need a countervailing force. That's why you need a big challenge from the outside. Yes. But there might be a secret world order. I just haven't met it yet. Hi, thank you for a really interesting talk. And as a full disclaimer, I'm currently an MSc student in economics here at the LSE. Um, I was wondering whether you think that... You're still smiling, so it can't large... be all going badly. <laughs> I was wondering whether you think that a large part of the reason why people feel the need to accept no alternative is that the vast majority of the public don't feel equipped to engage with economic thinking, and the people who are equipped to engage with economic thinking have been trained to engage with a particular kind of economic thinking in the neoclassical tradition. 
And if so, what kind of responsibility or even duty do you think that economic students and teachers of economics have towards the general public in, in general for dispelling those kinds of ideas? And what do you think, what do you think we should be doing? Well, um, uh, Robert once wrote a rather fantastic deconstruction of a World Bank World Development Report, which is all about the mechanisms of paradigm maintenance. And I think there is something about being inside a discipline where basically all the jobs depend upon holding a certain point of view. And, you know, it's long been pointed out that if you wish to rise within a certain institution, if you don't um, echo its tenets and um, internalise its, it, it, its own, the stories it tells itself about how the world works, if you don't operate within the discipline, within the consensus, you are neatly and quickly um, excommunicated, whatever that means. So I think, yes, there are sociological institutional mechanisms at work which ensure that once taken root, a certain model perpetuates. And I think you've seen that in the business schools, you've seen that in the economics departments. You know, there was a, a long period of time, and I'm not even sure if it's changed that much now. I mean, yes, the World Bank might employ people who are non-economists, but the economists it, it employs are invariably um, of a certain persuasion. And, and those that employees which aren't generally don't hang around very much hence you get wonderful people like Herman Daly having a short sojourn and then um, throwing his hands up in horror and, and leaving and those things haven't really changed over time um, it's still yes there's a, a debate on sort of new Keynesian Keynesianism going on at the moment but it's it, it, it's still very much the case that if you wish to be you know a city analyst or have any job in economics that pays above a certain pay grade um, you will be laughed at if you don't repeat certain basic nostrums. Um, and that's why this question about you know, different departments and interdisciplinary thinking is, is, is an interesting and important one. Um, I, I, I suspect that there is a lifespan to the ways in which particular paradigmatic thinking in economics holds <laughs> sway. You know, maybe Keynesianism had a heyday of 20 or 30 years, neoliberalism Likewise, so let's just say you're perfectly positioned to usher in a new dawn. Um, let me know how it goes. Uh, yes. <clears throat> there's, a, there's a mic coming down. With your talk of you know, wanting to explore new ways to do things, um, why didn't you look at a new, more environmentally friendly way to like, publish your book, for example? <laughs> <clears throat> you, um, what, what, what would that what would that be? Me not produce a book at all? Maybe just do it digitally? Well, no, like, for example, um, I forget there was a comedian recently that um, he published. He self-published his uh, work online for people to download mm. to bypass, you know, like the ticket companies and and other things like that. Um, the normal publication distribution mechanism. So. I mean, there's lots of alternative ways. For there are, but you know what? I bet, I bet you, I mean, I haven't got the numbers on this at my disposal, but I bet you if you did a full energy analysis of how that operates, and given the fact that if you've got the right source for your paper book, I bet you in the full loop that wouldn't necessarily be environmentally better, depending on where the servers had, where the power comes to power those servers. A lot of these big servers are in, the, are in North America where they're going headlong for new coal, shale gas, and all the rest of it to generate that electricity. So it's a good test and exercise. And if anybody is sitting in the audience with a kind of research grant going spare, who fancies commissioning something like that, we could look into it. It is rather shocking to think that everything that is read, that we read electronically, requires a power source. 
and increasingly the power is coming from coal, mm. of all things. Um, so, yes. So we're, we're sitting here talking about policy issues in a relatively comfortable part of the world where, where you can debate these things mm. relatively civilized. I'm from Lebanon. Right next door is Egypt. These matters are almost life and death today. Um, and and mm. these new e economic systems are are budding in, in the place of a dead or destroyed system rather than it's a, a, a slow transition. Mm. In some cases, hopefully, fingers crossed, people are going to go to jail for not you know, not recognizing the obvious, and I believe everybody does. Everybody just wants to close their eyes to it because business, the media, and, and politics are in bed, and it's us academics who are sitting here debating what we already know is fact. Do you feel that this, this um, transition or, or maybe more violent, more drastic, more faster change is about to happen, at least in, in the Western hemisphere? That's a very good question. Uh, I, I think... So just repeat yeah. the question. What is the essence of it? Uh, if, if I understand your question correctly, you're comparing the upheavals that are happening in other parts of the world and, and, and then asking, what is the likelihood of something like that kicking off here, basically? Um, which, to answer that, requires me to look into a, something of a crystal ball. Uh, and, and all I would say is that there's, um, there's a work of fiction by Doris Lessing um, called Memoirs of a Survivor, uh, which is written in the aftermath of some unspecified breakdown of social order. What she does in that is create uh, a vision of how easily the thin fabric of civilization can be rent and how quickly things we take for granted in terms of order and our expectations can fall apart. And when I read it, I looked at the world around me and could easily see such things happening. Now, I am an optimist. If you ask me why, I can't really tell you. I just am. I get up in the morning and I kind of feel that good shit's going to happen. Um, in spite of evidence to the contrary sometimes. Um, and one of the things which motivates me is seeing the good hearts and well-meaning of many of my contemporaries and of younger generations who want to make a better job of things. And the fact that people, often for no payment or immediate material reward, are willing to put their life's energies on the line to get out there and do things and make things happen. Um, I think we're in a very volatile circumstance. I think our infrastructures... I've I, talked about how they've sort of become sort of shock propagation, if you like. And I think one of the things... I didn't have time to go into it in, in detail, but some of the notions, some of the orthodox notions around efficiency, whether it's in the food system, just-in-time delivery, etc., where you've removed what a healthy ecosystem would have i.e. slack in the system, have worn some of those systems to the point whereby they are fairly threadbare. And 
at actually the turn of the millennium in the UK for people who weren't here at the time, there was a point at which the road hauliers blockaded energy depots. And there was a period of time in which the chief executives of the big food retail shops, the supermarkets, went to Whitehall and said to um, the government that we've got three days' worth of food left on our shelves. They were saying, in effect, we're, we're nine meals from anarchy. Um, I think that kind of wearing thin of infrastructures, uh, whether it's the food system or the energy system, is a characteristic, a perverse outcome of some of the economic orthodoxies that we have allowed to flourish, which have encouraged a kind of vulnerability. So that's a long-winded way of saying that the circumstances are such that pretty much anything could happen. What happens depends on how the likes of you and I intervene as agents of change, able to bring whatever agency we can create or muster to these events, to bear on these events, to try and tip it toward a more convivial and humane outcome and direction. So, so maybe one way of doing that would be to have some sort of system ready for when it all breaks down. When this breaks down, we're going to do this, or when that breaks down. This is the progressive equivalent of, 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 the, of the Patriot Act, isn't it, I suppose? That never let a good um, crisis or, or chaos, form of chaos go to waste. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think... You know, I think all the investment bankers are doing that. Um, yeah, I... I think contingency planning is a very good idea. And one of the notions that um, I floated, actually, is that, that there should be a sort, of, a sort of third sector progressive equivalent of the Civil Contingencies Committee. You know, theirs is called COBRA. Maybe we should call ours Mongoose or something like that, in which, in which we plan what to do, how to make something better happen if the shit does hit the fan. One of the questions um, that puzzles me is how much higher will income concentration not income inequality, but income concentration at the top go before there uh, is some kind of um, serious um, uh, mass, including middle class um, uh, action, to rein in this income concentration at the top. It, it is quite astonishing. If you take the United States in 2010, the total increase in economic growth um, 93%, 93% of the increase in national disposable income went to the top 1%. During the Bush years, um, 73% of the increase in national income during the Bush years went to the top 1%. And the question is, um, what might reverse this uh, increasing concentration of um, income at the top, and why is it that the middle classes have remained so acquiescent as this concentration has gone on and on and on. It is, I think, a really puzzling question that income concentration has become, has remained on the sidelines of public policy. It has not become a big public issue except in the context of does this banker deserve a £5 million bonus given that the company's shares have gone down. That's the only context in which this issue um, has come up rather than the income concentration uh, um, itself. So I think that's one thing to watch. What is going to happen to this constant increase in concentration of income at the top? What might trigger some mass action, including through political parties, to uh, to tackle it um, seriously. Anyway, I think we have time for just one more question. Uh, yes. Uh, um, yeah, 
that's a really important point you've made. But I mean, I think the vast majority of us wouldn't have a clue how to. Resp- I, I mean, I'm I'm involved with the Occupy movement, and I'm refreshed every time I meet with people talking about what we're going to. You know, we've just managed to save a library for a couple of years. Lots of different stuff that we've done, but. It, you know, what you've just said is critical because actually the redistribution of that wealth could actually, you know, feed the bloody world for Christ's sakes. But I think the vast majority of us wouldn't have a clue because they make their own rules about how much they get paid and so on and so on. And how, how does one... I mean, I'm sure Occupy eventually will come up with the answer to this, but I, right now, I think most of us don't have a clue. I think one of the answers is to read the book. <clears throat> Um, and, and I think we should draw it to a close but let me just, just say before we do that um, copies are on sale uh, on sale um, outside at a discounted price and Andrew is going to remain here uh, happy to sign uh, copies if you should wish so uh, the problem with this is that you have to struggle out there buy and then struggle back in here Um, and get Andrew to sign them if you should wish to do so. So, um, many thanks, Andrew, for that uh, fantastic...